This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So what we're looking at isn't necessarily the subjective aspect of resurrection, which is to say how it is that resurrection affects us, how we live differently in light of the resurrection. It's just looking at this insofar as we can historically, trying to investigate it historically. The main source that we're using for this evening is this very good book um, by someone called N.T. Wright. He is a very fine New Testament scholar. It's a book called Resurrection of the Son of God. Um, it is a book that a lot of people haven't read because it's like 700 something pages long. People really like read books these days. I've read, read the Action Bible. It was more than 700 pages long. It was 800 pages long. All right, all right, all right. I take it back. So there's, there's one Berkeley student who's doing stuff. She happens to be seven years old. Uh, so it, it's, a, it's a big, long book. Um, it's incredible, fantastic. Uh, I have a huge amount of appreciation. For, uh, for Wright and his, his work, he's someone who's taught me a lot. He's probably, uh, he, whoa, that was scary. He also wrote an endorsement of my book, which probably single-handedly sold like half of the copies of it that had been sold. So I have appreciation for him on, on those grounds as well. What we're going to, oh no, wow. This is, that was really cute how you did that, buddy. This is, I'm just, I hope that the people who are listening to this, who aren't here, really, really enjoy this. Trying to piece together what's actually going on. The, sort of sounds of the corpses falling down on the, uh, on the tile here. So what Wright does, and this is, I think, is really good if you're thinking, hey, we're getting to Easter. Easter's next week. Um, UC Berkeley students cry a lot. <laughs> Everybody's going to know it now. They just cry in the middle of class. Um, we're getting close to Easter, and so it's interesting to think about the resurrection from a historical standpoint as a historical phenomenon and to investigate it historically insofar as we're able to. So one of the questions that Wright goes and asks, and it's obviously a great historical question, asks is, why did the Christian movement begin and take the shape that it did? So why did it begin? Why does it come into existence historically? And why does it take the particular, and we will say strange shape, that it does. Those are the questions that we are going to look at this evening. Now, to begin, if we're thinking in terms of, you know, what is the context? What do people believe historically in the ancient world about things like resurrection, about things like life after death? How do we understand, if we want to understand what's distinctive about Christianity, what's the context in which, you know, this, this comes to be? What we're going to look at is the views that we have of pagans, of Jews and of Christians in this period. And it's going to be a bit simplified, but I think that that, that will be okay. I'm, I'm kind of abstracting a lot of data that if you want the full form, uh, Wright goes and gives you. It's very exhaustive, but just, I think, a fantastic book. And what you're going to see on the board here is you see one, so life after death and life after life after death, which isn't maybe the best constructed sentence I've put together. Um, what the heck does that mean? Life after death and then life after life after death. This is something that Wright focuses on, and I think it's actually a really important and helpful distinction. So we think, what do we mean by life after death? Life after death is whatever happens to you after you die. So if we think of in terms of you know, where does the soul go, what, whatever that happens to be. So that's life after death, the first category. The second category, life after life after death, is well, what the heck happens after that? Do you just stay in that same state for forever, 
or is there something that happens afterwards? And that's a, actually a really helpful and important distinction to make between those two things. So let's explore these. What do pagans, Jews, and Christians believe about life after death and then life after life after death? From a pagan standpoint, if we're thinking in terms of life after death, do they believe in a sort of continued post-mortem existence from those who have passed from the current mortal coil? In general, the answer is yes, although this is not necessarily a particularly good thing, something that one would celebrate. Can you raise your hands? Has anybody seen the movie Hercules before? Disney anime. Wow, that's literally everybody in this room has seen Hercules. You, this, this is note for the tape. UC Berkeley students love Hercules. This is, uh, this is for anybody who's not present, can't see the show, show of hands. Um, so uh, as research for this lecture, um, my wife and children and I all watch Hercules this week because, you know, you got to be thorough as a researcher. So we watch Hercules. Um, that's actually a really good picture of what it is that from a pagan standpoint, that life after death is like. If you think of Hades. So Hades, you've got, there's the character Hades, who's kind of funny, but a bummer. Um, and then you have the place itself. And you can see there is these sort of disembodied souls kind of going around in circles. You can't usually make like moaning noises. They don't seem to be particularly happy about their location, about being in Hades. They're still, in some sense, recognizable. If you think of Hercules goes down to get Meg, he can sort of spot which one is Meg somehow. Maybe that's just part of it. They need that to make the plot work. But they're still, in some ways, recognizable as the self that had once been embodied. But it is a selfhood, which you could say, pales in comparison to real embodied existence. That is the primary view that you're going to find just within the pagan sort of Greco-Roman context. What do you, you know, what, what do people tend to believe? You go down, you go down to Hades, and generally speaking, it's a bummer. Nobody's happy about being in Hades. Now, that would be your majority view, the most dominant view that you have in the ancient world. Are there other views? There are. There are some people they're going to find some Greek philosophers who just say, we just think it's, there's nothing. Like, you just cease to exist. That's the end of the story. Most people don't believe that. And part of why they don't believe that is because you do have phenomena like people seeing people's spirits, ghosts, you know, necromancy actually doing things, strange things happening like that, sort of somehow accord with it. So most people do believe that there is a continued spiritual existence. But you do find some people who have a sort of minority report who, you know, say, I just don't think that's anything. There's not that many people believe it. You also have another minority report, which is the Platonist view. Now, Plato, interestingly, believes, hello, welcome. Um, Plato <coughs> believes that, yes, there is a continued spiritual existence after death, but that this continued existence is actually a good thing rather than a bad thing. It's actually better in many ways than what it is that we have currently because bodily existence, not so great from a Platonist standpoint. Spiritual reality, hey, we like spiritual realities. Let's, let's go for those. And so you have at least the potential to go into experience some kind of good spiritual reality. Now, is it going to be a good spiritual reality for everybody? No. And this is actually, actually, this, this goes part and parcel with Plato's whole system. Like, why does he believe this? Well, part of why he believes it is that he believes that justice is a real thing. 
that right and wrong are real things. Goodness, badness are real things. And also that justice is something that God or the gods hold us you know, accountable for. Is justice fully worked out in this current lifetime? Usually no. Usually most of us have not fully received the recompense for what it is in this lifetime that we've done good or bad. And so from that, because of the reality of goodness and justice, and because those things aren't worked out fully when in the current you know, space time, time continuum, what we actually experience, that then means that there must be something else. There must be some sort of continued existence, not an embodied existence, a disembodied existence, but some kind of continued existence in which you will receive that recompense for whatever it is that you did. So some sort of good thing or bad thing, probably not Hades. So there is at least from Plato's standpoint, there is a positive spiritual possibility. And you'll find other philosophers in general who are going to say this. Is that the majority view? No, it's not. You'll find it among philosophers. Overall, if you're going to a pagan funeral, uh, there's not going to be a lot of smiles there. There's not a whole lot of hope there. The person is gone. They're likely in Hades. They're not coming back from Hades. And that's kind of the end of the story. There's not a whole lot that you can say. You can, you know, pour out some libations. You can watch Hercules. There's not, there's not a whole lot that, that you, you can do about it. So if we say, do they believe in life after death? We can say, probably sad face. <laughs> probably sad. Probably life after death, and it's probably not going to be great. Um, what about life after life after death? Do pagans believe in life after life after death? That's to say, if you get people in Hades, do they ever get out of Hades? This is really interesting. You're right, it's fantastic here. The answer, quite uniformly, is no. Nobody makes it out of Hades. Once you're there, you're gone. Now, it's actually really fun. The only exception that you can really find to this is actually the myth of Hercules. In the myth of Hercules, you see that there is somebody, you know, goes down and gets, I don't think she's actually named Meg in the non-Disney version, <laughs> but we'll, we'll call her Meg still. Um, you know, gets Meg, goes and brings her back to a sort of continued body existence. If you look within all of ancient pagan rights, that is the only thing that you're going to find. Pagans are absolutely clear, once you're gone, you are not coming back. And the myth of Hercules, though it's a cool story, there's ways in which you can see that, like, you know, it's uh, probably easy, most, or easier than most pagan myths to market to, like, you know, a somewhat Christian America. It's like, you can see why I picked that one. Um, though, though there, you know, you have that story, nobody is taking that story in any kind of literal way. It's just one myth among other myths. And the myths are themselves pretty weird. And so this is par for the course that you would have a myth that does a bunch of weird stuff. Beyond that, you're not going to find anything. And nobody is asking, saying, oh gosh, Hercules, can, can we pray to Hercules? And you know, maybe he's going to let us out of Hades. It just doesn't exist. You're not going to find Hades, but he's saying anything along those lines. So here we have probably for life after death. When it comes to life after life after death, our answer would be, hey guys, not a chance. Not a chance. You are not coming back. And there's something that's interesting about this. It's not even clear from a pagan standpoint that coming back would be desirable. Yes, if you, you know, have this sort of general view, it, does existence, is that better than, you know, non-existence? Yeah, but if you kind of hold to the pagan Platonist view and you think, 
well, actually, it's the spirit that's good and the body, matter, those kind of things are bad. It's not necessarily even clear that coming back to some sort of re-embodied existence would itself be something that you know you would want. You're going to have variations within the pagan world. I say, is that a good thing or a bad thing? So that's pagans. What do pagans believe about life after death and life after life after death? What about Jews in this early context? What do they believe? Here, we're going to see there is more than one side, and we're, we're sort of on more familiar territory when we come to this. So if you think of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, can somebody tell me what the Sadducees believe? What do they believe about life after death? Anybody? Anybody? Yes? The Sadducees believe that they go to Sheol, and then the Pharisees believe just nothingness. So it sort of be the other way around. So you would have the Sadducees, who it seems only took the first five books of the Torah as authoritative, and the, the way that it goes, it says this in Acts, so Lucas says, they believe in neither angel nor spirit nor anything. They're, in a sense, sort of materialists. They just kind of take the world as it is, and they don't seem to place any kind of credence in the idea of a continued post-mortem existence, which leads to the joke about the Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection, so they're sad, you see. Uh, it's, it's an joke. It was told me by another biblical scholar, and it's like, as a way to remember the difference between Sadducees and Pharisees, it works so well that you can't not make the joke, but then nobody invites you back for speaking events, which is really unfortunate. So anyway, I'm glad we had a chance to do this once. It's been really nice meeting you guys. Um, so that's the Sadducees. They... Hold to just the first five books of the Torah. Don't take this as a sufficient basis for ideas of resurrection, continued existence, or anything. It, that's just all they believe. What it is, it's, it's, uh, everything that you see, that's kind of what you get. They, within Judaism in this period, are a minority. They might be the people officially in charge of the temple, or at least a lot of it. Uh, they are a minority of Judaism in you know, the, the time of Christ. Most Jews do believe in continued existence. Now, what does that continued spiritual existence look like? Well, from the standpoint of the Pharisees, they are not very specific about this, besides that there is something. People continue on. And so, whether that's going to be a great thing, whether it's going to be a bad thing, you have ideas like Sheol, which corresponds conceptually with ideas of Hades. So you think of like the Septuagint translation translates Sheol into Greek as Hades. And so there's definitely conceptual overlap between the Greek idea and the Hebrew idea. Uh, so do you continue in Sheol? Maybe there's something like that. Um, is it a better sort of situation? It might be a more positive, something more like what the Platonists are saying. That's possible too. The Pharisees are going to insist that there is continued existence because of what they believe comes after that. But what that intermediate state looks like, they're not particularly specific about. And so here we're going to say no slash yes. One party, no. Larger party, Pharisee party, yes. What life after life after death? Here we're going to see Sadducees. Again, they're sad. They don't believe in the resurrection. That just doesn't, it's not part of their theology. And so they don't do that. So they're going to clearly be a no here. The Pharisees distinctly in the ancient world do believe in the idea of resurrection. Part of this is scriptural. So part of this is there are parts of scripture that they look back to and holding to more than just the first five books of the Torah. 
they believed that there is scriptural warrant for the idea of resurrection. Sometimes this is implicit. You have that you know, funny line in you know, Job about seeing you know, your demon in the flesh and stuff like that. Other times this gets quite explicit. And so two of the examples that you can see are uh, Daniel, so Daniel 12, yeah, it, it says specifically that the, you know, the dead will rise and that they, those who are resurrected, will shine like stars. So you can see pretty clear, unambiguous text that's there. The most unambiguous text would be 2 Maccabees. So 2 Maccabees 7, if you haven't had a chance to read 2 Maccabees 7, you want to read that when you, when you get home. Uh, there, the resurrection isn't just an idea, it's actually the basis for how it is that Jews continue to survive in a state of persecution, that they're willing to give up their lives when they're not able to go into obey the Torah, when they're forced to break the law. They're willing to give up their lives, they're willing to die, because they believe explicitly in the resurrection. So something like 2 Maccabees 7, you open that and you sort of don't know if you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Now, this is interesting. If you believe in a resurrection, what do they say about it? How's it all going to work? Don't know. They say it's going to happen. They believe it's going to happen. The logic is itself somewhat analogous to what you see in Plato, and that God is just. He's going to do what's right. Yes, question. No, it's actually not a question. It's a comment. There's yes. actually a third example, but I don't have my Bible with me to point to it. Yes. But uh, in the story of David and Bathsheba, where Bathsheba... Uh, becomes pregnant and she loses that baby and then the second baby is Solomon. Yeah. There's a psalm that refers back to it where David is referring to the psalm about his lost son that died yeah. um, from Bathsheba and he says and I will see something to the effect of and I, I see I will see you again. Yeah. So the I see you again comes after obviously would be after death. So that's an actual example I can't I don't have my book. Yeah so you have you, no you do have a number of those and what's interesting is actually when you're going from the Hebrew text to the Septuagint text. So when the Hebrew scriptures are translated into Greek, one of the things that's interesting is a lot of the places that you find that you might not have necessarily thought were talking about resurrection just from the Hebrew, they become a lot more clear that this is, no, we're talking about actually raising you up, resurrecting uh, in the Greek translation. So what might have been implicit in those original Hebrew writings becomes explicit when it's translated into Greek. So you actually find like a lot of them that are like that. Thank, thank you for that. Um, so timing of this, when is this going to happen? How is it all going to work? Well, how it's going to work, they don't know exactly. They just believe that it isn't. It's in a sense, it's kind of a deduction, you know, from God's justice. But also, there's scriptural warrant for it. There's revelation for it. Um, the way it will happen, they don't really know. This is, you find fun practices that you see. So, so like the Pharisees, uh, when they bury people, you will actually get second burials. So you go and you bury somebody, there's the burial. You come back later after the sort of body is decomposed, you just got a bunch of bones. What do you do? Well, you put all the bones in a box. Why do you put all the bones in a box? Well, so that when God goes and reconstitutes you, he knows where to find everything. Because if it's just you and a bunch of other bodies, it's like your you know, tibia might get, I don't know, mixed up with Eric's tibia. And, you know, it's, it's, it's like, if it's a big pile of bones, it's like, oh, gosh, it's kind of hard to figure out how it all works. And it's like, you know, God at the last day is going to say, gosh, we're, we're missing a couple femurs. <laughs> it's like, how, does this, how does this work? Well, there's a sense in which, and this is something that's kind of beautiful about this, I think. The, the, the belief in the resurrection is such that the most appropriate response to the dead that they can have is, we're going to go back in there, take out the bones, 
put in a box because we believe that God is going to, by his power, reconstitute us and resurrect us. And so we want to have everything straight in anticipation for that. So that's a, I think actually, you know, a cool kind of beautiful response to that really firm belief in the resurrection. When is it going to happen? Here, it, all your source is going to tell you it's going to happen at the last day. So whenever it is that the last day is, whenever sort of the end of this world is, that's when the resurrection is going to take place. And so we say here, yes, at the, what is science called the, let's try that again, tough word, the last day. Yes, at the last day. Will take place, not going to take place anytime soon, whenever the last day is, that's when it will take place. What about Christians? What do Christians believe about life after death? What do they believe about life after life after death? Two things I want to point out for you. One, here, Christianity is thoroughly within the Jewish milieu, and specifically the Pharisaic milieu. When Paul in Acts, for those of you who are taking the Acts class, I think we've got at least one over here. Uh, when Paul in Acts goes and says that I am a Pharisee, and I'm the son of Pharisees, I don't think that he's just making things up in that context. I really think that he holds to still that Pharisaic hope, which in his view is now a realized Pharisaic hope. So it's firmly within the Jewish context, within the Jewish milieu, but it is modified. Well, how is it modified? Well, a couple things you can say. One, this has gone from being at the periphery, so to speak, of Jewish belief to the center of belief, which we now call Christians, you know, Messianic Jewish, Jewish belief. This was something that, you know, you would find, again, 2nd Maccabees 7, you can find places that's prominent, Daniel 12, but it's not like this is sort of on every page of the Old Testament. Boy, if it's not on every page of what we know as the New Testament, it just sort of jumps off everywhere. So something from the center has now moved to the periphery, from the periphery has now moved to the center. And if you want a great example of this, my favorite example is Acts 17. So Acts 17, Paul at the Areopagus in Athens, he's proclaiming the gospel to the Athenians. Athenians don't know what he's talking about, but he's trying as best as he can. Sort of saying, okay, how, what, what points of contact can I have? Trying to explain the faith as best as he can do it. What is their response? They say, gosh, this guy's saying weird stuff. He seems to be proclaiming strange divinities. He seems to be talking about these two gods. One is named Jesus, the other one is named Anastasis. One of those words means Jesus, Jesus, Anastasis, resurrection. The resurrection is so central to Paul's proclamation of what the Christian message is that they actually make the mistake of thinking that resurrection is it's this other god, and it's a system that has two gods, one called Jesus, the other called resurrection. That is how fully it has moved to the center of Christian belief, thought, practice. It's right there at the middle. Well, how the heck does that happen? Well, think of it in terms of life after death and life, life after life after death. Life after death, do Christians believe in this? Yes, they do believe in this. But what's interesting, and Rick does a really good job pointing this out, they don't necessarily place a great deal of emphasis here, nor do they necessarily have a great deal of specificity. You have ideas that I think continue on from the Jewish foundation. So if you think of, for instance, 
like ideas like the bosom of Abraham. So, you know, the, so the parable of rich man and Lazarus, you have Lazarus dies, he goes to Abraham's bosom. Is he resurrected there? It doesn't seem like it. It seems like it's some sort of intermediate state that he's in. Um, you have the rich man. He's clearly in torment. He's in a bad state. But it doesn't say that he's resurrected. He's just somewhere in a place where there's a great divide between the two sides. He's clearly not happy about being there. But he's not, he hasn't been reconstituted physically. So there is an intermediate state. And you can see this stated positively. So Paul, again, writes fantastic. It's showing all the places where Paul goes and talks about you know, going and being with Jesus in some kind of way. So it's clear that those who are in the state of pre-resurrection life after death, that's a positive thing, particularly for those who are in Christ. So yes, they do talk about this, they do affirm it, they just don't really say that much about it. What's really distinctive about Christianity is this thing about life after life after death. Because here, they are very specific. If you think of Pharisaic Judaism, Pharisaic Judaism affirmed life after life after death, but in a fairly vague way, where they're going to say a lot of different things about what the heck that might look like. Maybe it's this over here, maybe it's this. Who, who knows? But we do really believe in it. Christians believe in this in a very distinct and uniform way. They're all putting all of the emphasis here and saying things that are very specific as far as what this is going to look like. And so if we try to answer this question, you know, I think the best way to do this is you guys aren't going to believe this. You guys aren't going to believe this. What does that mean? Well, what Christians mean when they say you guys aren't going to believe this, I just made that up. That's my summary of you guys aren't going to believe this. Because it's, it's kind of unbelievable. Yeah, so the whole framework, same framework. You inherit the Pharisaic framework. Here's the crazy thing. The thing that we all thought was going to happen at the last day, like the end of time, that's everybody's going to happen. You get the resurrection of the just and the unjust, and God's going to go and give everything kind of recompense. That thing that we've been talking about happening at the last day, turns out it just happened to one person specifically. And not like sort of any person, to somebody who we actually believe was God himself. This has taken place in history, and we have seen it and are attesting to it. Now, to you know, people in Athens, that sounded like crazy talk. To people in Judea, that sounded like crazy talk. People pretty much everywhere, that sounded like crazy talk. But this is what they just kept saying. Look, we have seen this with our own eyes. This also explains, you ever read the New Testament before and thought, this is weird, because you read one page and you feel like you're living in the end times. Like, hey, it's the end times, this is the last days. And then you read the next page and it seems like, gosh, it's the beginning of a brand new world. And you can't really figure out which one it is. Like, you have this sort of, like, it's like, you know, it's kind of like the, uh, what is it, the, uh, the already not yet kind of thing that people talk about in theology. It's just so weird feature of the New Testament. You can't tell if it's the end of the world or the beginning of the world. That actually seems like that in a, you know, sort of oblique way perfectly expresses what you're looking at here. Because the thing that Jews believed was going to happen at the last day has happened in human history. But human history has continued on. 
well, what does that mean? Well, it would seem to me that we're in the last days, but also, theologically, would seem to indicate that there is a new beginning that is taking place, if you sort of look closely at the phenomena. So that is, if we're thinking in terms of what the Christian, you know, what the Christian uh, movement believe about this, that's a sort of quick summary. Um, if you guys don't believe in this, this has actually happened historically. This happened to one person, and from this one person, this is the destiny that we all ourselves are going to have. Now, let's look at some specifics here. Uh, so if that's what do Christians believe, why in the heck did they believe it? Why would they believe something like that? What historical reasons can we say for something so strange coming into existence? Well, what we're going to look at, we're going to look at Paul, we have the Gospels, and then we'll kind of summarize a bit of material. And so we have Paul, who's writing in the 40s and 50s. One of the things that's interesting when you look at his writings, the resurrection is something that he barely ever describes. There's very few places in his writings that we say, like, hey guys, so there's this thing. It's called resurrection. I've got some news for you. I would like to you know, make you aware of this. You don't find that. He, writing in the 40s and 50s, he presupposes the resurrection everywhere. People who he's talking to, they all already know what the resurrection is. And so you're, in a sense, entering a conversation which is already taking place where they sort of know the terms. And the best that we can do is we could go and sort of hear those conversations. And hopefully there's going to be places where he goes and reminds you of what it is that we're all talking about when we're talking about resurrection. The best place for this, if you want to get a sort of one spot for what it is that Paul believed about resurrection, what it is that, you know, the churches believe about resurrection, we can take one chapter from one of Paul's epistles. So we'll take 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, not written at the beginning of Paul's career, not written at the end, probably somewhere in the middle, so somewhere on like 53 is when he goes and writes this. Um, it is a sort of classic statement of what the resurrection is. I'm going to read this whole passage to you. So if you brought Bibles, go ahead and pull them open. If not, I will read all of this for you, and then we'll talk about some of the details. Again, from a standpoint of somebody studying early Christianity, this is one chapter of one book, and there's a lot of other chapters, and there's a lot of other books. But if we're going to take one thing to start with, I think this is a valuable one because what Paul is doing here is Paul is referring back to material that he had himself received previously. So if we're trying to get back to, you know, hey, what's the earliest origins of this? It's a really helpful source. So I'm going to read this for you. If you have any Bibles with you, feel free to um, follow along. This is mostly Catholics. You guys don't have Bibles with you. Who am I kidding? Come on. <laughs> um, there you go. I love it. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Colleen. Fantastic. Um, so, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Now I am reminding you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you indeed received and in which you also stand. Through it, you are also being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I handed on to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at once, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. After that, he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born abnormally, he appeared to me, for I, am for I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me has not been ineffective. Indeed, I have toiled harder than all of them, not I, however, but the grace of God that is with me. Therefore, whether it be I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This goes on. It's going to go on for a little bit, so just so you know, uh, it's, it's worthwhile. But if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some among you say there's no resurrection of the dead? There's no resurrection of the dead, but neither has Christ been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then empty too is our preaching. Empty too your faith. Then we are also false witnesses to God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, neither has Christ been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. For if this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are the most pitiable people of all. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a human being and the resurrection of the dead came also through a human being. For just as in Adam all die, so too in Christ shall all be brought to life, but each one in the proper order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to his God and Father, when he has destroyed every sovereignty and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he subjected everything under his feet. When it says that everything has been subjected, it is clear that it, it, it excludes the one who subjected everything to him. Just in case you're wanting, it excludes that. When everything is subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will people accomplish by having themselves baptized for the dead? It's a great question, Paul. If the dead are not raised at all, why are they having themselves baptized for them? Again, good question. Moreover, why are we endangering ourselves all the time? Every day I face death. I swear it by, by the pride in you, brothers, that I have Jesus, in Jesus Christ our Lord. If at Ephesus I fought with beasts, so to speak, what benefit was it to me? If the dead are not raised... Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be led astray. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober as you ought and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come back? You fool, what you sow is not brought to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel of wheat, perhaps, or of some other kind. But God gives it a body as he chooses, and to each of the seeds its own body. Not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for human beings, another kind for flesh for animals, another kind of flesh for birds, and another fish. There are both heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the brightness of the heavenly is one kind, and that of the earthly another. The brightness of the sun is one kind, the brightness of the moon another, moon another, and the brightness of the star is another, for a star differs from star in brightness. So also is the resurrection of the dead. Here, if you just think to yourself, Paul, where did you get this inside information? You as a Pharisee, how do you suddenly know about all these things? Well, we'll see what we find. So it is also with the resurrection of the dead. It is sown corruptible. It is raised incorruptible. It is sown dishonorable. 
it is raised glorious. It is sown weak, it was raised powerful. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual one. So too it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. But the spiritual was not first, rather the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, earthly, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly one, so also are the earthly. And as is the heavenly one, so also are the heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly one, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly one. This I declare, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit corruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In an instant, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For that which is corruptible must clothe itself with incorruptibility, and that which is mortal must clothe itself with immortality. And when this which is corruptible clothes itself with incorruptibility, and this which is mortal clothes itself with immortality, then the word that is written shall come about. Death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be firm, steadfast, always fully devoted to the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. A couple of things I want to note for you. At the beginning of that text, you have the thing that is passed on. So what Paul says, I remind you of what it is that I gave to you back when he was first in Corinth, which isn't even here in 53. What I pass on to you as of first importance, so what it is that he himself received from the apostles. This, depending on when you go back to the conversion of St. Paul, is either going to be sometime probably in the late 30s or sometime in the 40s that he would have received this. What you have is an early creedal statement. It's a summary of how it is that the resurrection worked, what actually went into place historically when all these things happened. So that's what Paul is giving you. And we're going to come back to that and see how that actually relates to some of what we see in the Gospels. The other thing I want to point out for you is you can see Paul, when he's talking about the way that our individual resurrection, if we pretend we're all Corinthians, um, the way that our individual, individual resurrection work, it is based on a specific example. And so there's a sense in which he kind of has the prototype. He has seen the way that this works in real life. I know it's crazy. And having seen the way it works in real life, he can then say, this is how it will work for us as well. There is a specificity, which from a historical standpoint is extremely curious because you do not find anything like this either within the Jewish million or within the broader pagan million. So what the heck is going on here? Well, let's look at some potential objections. You think like, let's be, let's, like, let's be good skeptics here because you can't just take him for his word. Well, what if he just thought about, you know, he just thought Jesus was God or the Messiah or something. That is why he believed in the resurrection. He thought Jesus was God or the Messiah or something. I think that's a good objection. 
Here's the issue with that. Think about, somebody answering me, where is the place in the Old Testament where it very clearly goes and says that God or the Messiah or somebody like that is going to raise from the dead and be resurrected? The answer is there's not an extremely clear one like that. Now, we can post facto go back and look at these texts and say, oh boy, that seems like a cool hint of that. That seems like a cool hint of over here. You can sort of put the pieces together afterwards. But in Jesus' own day, there wasn't a whole lot of people looking around saying, oh man, if, if could you let me know when God shows up and dies and he resurrects? Because then I'll really know that he's God and the Messiah or fill, fill in the blank. You just don't historically see that. That's not the way it works. If anything, the argument works the other way around. Paul, what is he convinced of first, even before he's convinced of the identity of Jesus, he is convinced of the resurrection from the appearance that he has in Acts 9. He sees Jesus. He is himself blinded by Jesus. This isn't just a sort of spiritual thing. Usually ghosts don't blind people. I don't know if you've like seen a ghost recently. They're usually not that hard on the eyes. If you think of like Casper, he's kind of see through you know? When was the last time someone was blinded by a ghost? Like, ah, no, I can't see anymore. I can't think of a ghost story. Maybe the ghost you guys see do that. But usually that doesn't happen. That's not what happens to Paul. What he sees is so real that he can't even see with his natural eyes anymore. And so after this experience, what does he do? He starts reasoning and then goes, yes, girl? A little bit like when Peter thought God was a ghost. You're absolutely right. It's my daughter. She's really cool. Um, I'm going to be like her when I grow up, and then you're all going to really like me. You're so sweet. I give her a huge allowance to say things like that. Um, good work. Keep it up. Um, so, if anything, the argument actually works backwards. Paul doesn't go and think, oh, yeah, well, I have to make up this resurrection to fit this sort of idea that I have of God and Messiah. Paul starts with the resurrection. That is the first thing he encounters in Acts 9. That's the first thing he knows is, boy, this guy that was dead is not dead anymore, and that's why I can't see. From there, he then reasons. He then goes back and reads through the scriptures and eventually comes to the conclusion, it doesn't take him that long, but he comes to the conclusion that this is actually the Messiah. This is the one that we have waited for. So this is a good objection. It is just backwards. The idea is backwards. Um, let's think about the Gospels. If that's a quick summary of Paul and the resurrection, what about the Gospels? The Gospels are four resurrection portraits, and they're four different resurrection portraits. I can't emphasize this enough. They, though they have overlap, they really seem like they are independent sources. Jared is in our Gospels class right now. He can tell you, we've been looking at this. They, they're four really independent sources that we have. Um, let's think about this. Some people might say, okay, well, yeah, Gospels telling you Jesus came back from the dead, fun, fantastic. But these are later writings, and they're later writings which reflect the church's own concerns, not histories, aren't like historians doing real historical things. They're just talking about the things that matter to them later on. Well, it's, it's an interesting idea. I think it's, it's, it's valuable for us to give as much, you know, uh, force to that as possible. Now, as far as them being later writings, in general, if we're thinking like in relation to Paul, that's probably correct. Now, 
nobody actually really knows when the Gospels are written. I have sort of my own views when I think the Gospels are written, but the Gospels, the dating of the Gospels is like the ultimate Rorschach test. It tells you, uh, like, you tell people about yourself when you say when the Gospels are written. You can really give plausible dates from, I don't know, like the 40s up until like, you know, 80s, 90s, and you can make good cases for a lot of things. Personally, I tend to date the Gospels in the 50s and 60s, that's just the way that the dating makes the most sense to me. But if somebody says, I think it's dating in the 90s, you can make good arguments for that. Or even earlier, you make good arguments for things like that too. In general, however, the objection's probably correct. These are probably later writings. One of the fun questions is, if they are later writings, what are they then preserving? Are they preserving material? That's is it just sort of all generated then? Or is it yet earlier material? We'll look at that. What about the idea that it reflects the church's own concerns? That these are, we're, you know, we're talking about ourselves. We're, I'm the community of Matthew, the Matthean community. We're talking about the things that the Matthean communities, that's why we're worried about being resurrected. And so that's why we're going to talk about all these kinds of things. And so we're sort of talking, you know, to ourselves about ourselves. That's sort of the way this is portrayed sometimes. Well, it's good if we're trying to engage with an objection like this, to ask some questions. So if that is the case, that these are not actually historical, it just reflects the church's own ideas, concerns from a later period, why is it that, one, they are not harmonized? Why are the gospel accounts not harmonized? If you read the four gospels accounts, and this is great fun, you go back and you look at these things, they give you different data. They are not all saying the same thing. And so, actually, in some ways, there's people who can be troubled by the differences in data that you get. So let's like talk about a couple of examples here. Like, um, how many angels are there at the tomb? We don't get exactly the same. Why one, two, three, four, who knows? Uh, there's, it's, they're, they're not reported in identical ways. What about how many women show up at the tomb? That's a good question. I'm going to show up with you. You kind of go back, you look at the gospel and say, well, there's different women who are there. And it says that, you know, maybe this one then, maybe this one over here. It's a good question. How about when Jesus goes and, you know, appears, where is he appearing? Is he appearing in Galilee? Is he appearing in Jerusalem and Judea? Where is he appearing? Well, they don't, I'll tell you, exactly the same thing. Now, this, I think, is fantastic because... The accounts, if you, you know, you put in work, they are harmonizable. You can take the four accounts and figure out ways in which you can reconcile and synthesize all the data, but they're very clearly not harmonized. Well, what does this mean? Well, say you and your friends are going and you're stealing cookies from the cookie jar, and your mom said not do what you're doing anyway, and then the cookie jar goes and breaks, and you're like, oh, no, it's broken cookie jar, what are you do? What do you and your friends do? You all talk to each other, and you get your story straight. You all say, okay, here's what happened, fill in the blank. This is what, and that's why the cookies are everywhere, and there's no more cookies, and there's a broken cookie jar. Because this, fill, you know, I don't know, there was a lion that jumped out, it escaped from the zoo, and it came through the window, knocked over the cookie jar. You just make sure that story is straight, it's consistent. That is not what you're looking at here. You really have four independent witnesses. So if this is just made up later, 
why don't they seem to reflect the kinds of things that people say when they're making things up? Why do they not share in those characteristics? Why are the stories not harmonized? Second question, why is there so little Bible in these accounts? Now, this is a bit of a subtle point, but actually this is really fun. Think of this. If you look in the resurrection stories, you might think, oh, we would expect that if you're talking about resurrection, they are going to take the biblical language and the terms that they have and sort of harmonize that to what you see in the Old Testament. And if somebody was to say, like, I'm just going to make up a resurrection story. I don't know if it occurred or not, whatever. But I'm just going to make up the story because that sounds like a fun thing to do. Well, you'd probably think if you want to make a plausible story, you'd probably go back to the Old Testament. You'd probably go back to Daniel 12, right? You know, the resurrected, they're going to shine like stars. It's going to be really fun. Starry and things. You'll see that. If you look in the resurrection narratives, who is shining like a star? Nobody shines like a star. Jesus does a lot of things, a lot of unexpected things. He's not shining like a star like Daniel 12 is. He says, you know, the resurrected are going to do. So whatever is going to happen, if they're making up a story, they didn't think to go and to harmonize it with what you find in the Old Testament. What about question three? How would you, you know, how would somebody answer this? If it is the case that this is made up, it's just sort of reflecting the church's own concerns, why is there no personal resurrection hope if you are looking in the resurrection accounts? Now, this is actually really interesting because the whole idea of this is that it's written reflecting what the churches care about. When chances are, they don't just care about this guy being resurrected, they probably care about themselves being resurrected. And like, how is this going to work in our own lives? Good luck if you are going through the four gospels and the four resurrection narratives. Good luck in trying to figure out anywhere where you get a hint that you yourself are going to be resurrected. That's actually a really interesting point. You don't see anything that's there that goes and talks about how either the apostles or later Christians or you know, generations of believers, anybody is going to be resurrected. It just focuses on the resurrection of Jesus. Why is that? If this is just some sort of later stuff reflecting the, own churches, the early church's concerns, why aren't they talking about their own resurrection? You would think you would find something like that. What about number four here? Why, if this is the case, this is some sort of inauthentic, it's made up, why do you get such a strange Jesus? Who would make up a resurrected figure like this? If you think of the kinds of characteristics, the kinds of things that you see Jesus doing in his resurrected body, they are not the kinds of things that anybody guessed that a resurrected person would do. So, for instance... He is asking them to eat things. He goes and says, do you have any fish? It seems as though they did not believe that he was, you know, more than kind of, you know, Casper the friendly Jesus. Like, they sort of, they, they couldn't get, like, get out of that. So he goes and he asks them for fish, and he eats it. Well, who would have thought that that, like, who thinks that? Oh, then also, guess what he does? He passes through walls. He just, here's a locked room, and then he just sort of shows up. I'm just going to be over here. How does that work? It doesn't, seem to, it doesn't make any sense. He shows up randomly, all kinds of places. People don't recognize him at first, and then suddenly they see who he is, and then he just vanishes, poof, he's gone. What about this physicality? Now, it's interesting. Right, he, he invents a term to describe this resurrected physicality of Jesus, and he calls it transphysicality. Transphysicality. Because you, it's not a normal natural physicality that he has in his resurrected body. It's something that's somehow beyond that physicality while still being embodied. And so, if you think of 
weird characteristics. He's clearly not in bad shape. He also still has the marks in his hands and in his side. How the heck did that happen? What in the world is going on there? The one thing that I think you can say about this is that nothing that you see in these portraits corresponds with any pre-existing ideas of what the resurrected body would be like. Nobody is sitting around saying, I bet, I bet whenever the resurrection happened, we're going to eat fish, but we'll also be able to pass through walls. <laughs> Good luck finding somebody that says something like that. It is just so specific, but so strange. There's no expectation that corresponds with this. And finally, fifth, why, if this is the case, this is all, you know, church has kind of made this thing up. Why do you have women as the primary witnesses? Can somebody tell me something about the testimony of women in the ancient world? Testimony of women in the ancient world. Thank you, Colleen. Zero. It does not count. It is legally inadmissible, both from a Jewish standpoint and from a broader Greco-Roman standpoint. It is legally inadmissible. So guess what? If you go and say, hey, wow, this Martha lady, she came <laughs> says this. Guess what that gets you? Nothing. Not it. Zilch. If this is the case that they're just making this up, why would they make up a story in which all four tellings of it go and give you accounts where the first people who see this are women whose Testimony is invalid before it's even reported. Who would make up a story like that? That's a really interesting question. Can we make this a little more interesting? Do you remember when I read that creedal statement? I was, this is really cool. You guys probably remember that part where I was talking about the women, right? We said this is like, this is kind of a summary of how the resurrection worked. And so the uh, you know, third day rose and came to the court of the scriptures, appeared to Cephas 12 and all these other people. You guys remember I said like you paired, you know, Mary and Martha and all the other women. Or maybe you don't remember that. Maybe you don't remember that. If you don't remember that, that's because in the short, easy spark notes version that you see here, which, you know, is the early creedal formula. Guess who's not there? It's the women. They're not there. Well, why aren't they there? Well, they're there because I think from an apologetic standpoint, if you're just giving sort of the short spark notes version, it's, it's not going to get anywhere. This is immediately inadmissible as a story. So if you think of the long version, if they're giving you the four accounts, all four accounts tell you, yes, women were the first primary witnesses of what happened. But the spark notes version, which we've seen, Maybe sometime, I don't know, sometime in the 40s, you can put it back early in the 30s if you want to, but probably sometime in the 40s, Paul goes and receives this. The Spark Notes version, which is passed on as the creed, it doesn't have the women there because it was such an apologetic liability. Now, that's not a hypothetical apologetic liability. The earliest preserved uh, critique, sort of a book written against Christians that we have, which is just preserved in fragments, but this is written from about 167 AD by the pagan philosopher Celsus. Um, and he goes and writes all this stuff against Christians, saying why all the Christians are so stupid. One of his favorite things that are stupid about Christians, and stupid about Christ in particular, is that Christ could not even figure out who to appear to who could properly report his resurrection. So you're telling me this guy is God over here, 
and he doesn't even know how legal testimony works. <laughs> and this is the language he uses. He says, he, when he was resurrected, he appeared to a hysterical woman. From Celsus' standpoint, this is hilarious. That you think that God would show up and not even know that he can't appear to a woman like that. The one thing that I think you can say, if you're thinking of those four you know, gospel accounts, it's very hard to figure out how it is that anybody would have made this up, who would make up a story like this that's going to go and really make things more difficult for them. What does that mean? That means that the four stories you have preserved in the Gospels actually, in a sense, go back before Paul. They go back historically, before that creedal story, or before that creedal statement. Now, does that mean that the four Gospels are written before, I don't know, 53 or 40, whatever it happens to be? Not necessarily, but whatever it is, the traditions that they're drawing upon, they are clearly earlier than that creedal statement that Paul received in the 40s. You were either getting pushed back into the really early 40s or you're getting pushed into the, the 30s when it comes to where these four accounts come from, which is, you think about the 30s? is basically when all of these things took place. So those are some questions that you would have for this kind of objection. Which you think, oh gosh, that's really interesting. So let's think about this. This is kind of big picture. Why is it that Christianity came into existence? Why is it that the movement showed up? And why did it take the particular shape that it did? Now some people might say, well, there's this wish fulfillment. People wanted something like this to happen, and so they said that it happened, and that's what's going on. I don't know if that works. Why wouldn't that work? Well, how about this? If you look in the Gospels, when the Gospels tell you what the apostles themselves are wishing, how often does it correspond with what Jesus wanted? <laughs> usually never. The answer is usually never. This is really cool. Thank you for that. You're girl. Um, you want to see this afterwards, I can show it to you. It's really cool. Um, Jesus has ideas. Usually his apostles think, are you sure about that, Jesus? It doesn't sound like a great idea. Um, like, so, like, whose wish fulfillment is that we're going to go up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man is going to be killed, and then three days later he's going to rise again? Pretty much they're just sort of silent all the time. They have no idea what's going on. When they do have wishes, they tend to be along the lines of hey, my mom wants to talk to you about me coming and sitting at your right hand and my brother sitting at your left hand when you come into your kingdom. Here she is. <laughs> um, that tends to be what their wishes look like. Or how about this? If we're thinking sort of not just you know, pre-resurrection, what do their post-resurrection wishes look like? Think of the beginning of Acts. And you think, oh gosh, they saw the resurrection. They must totally get this now, right? It all, everything must make sense to them. Well, sort of. If you think, what happens in the ascension and being of Acts? They're like, Jesus is there. He's about to be ascended into heaven. It's going to be really fantastic. And uh, the disciples come to say, hey, Jesus, hey, uh, I have a question for you. Was this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because we've really been looking forward to that. We've really been wishing that, that was going to happen. And we sort of have a sense that it might be now, but we thought we'd ask you first. So is this the time that you to restore the kingdom of Israel? And I don't, the, the text doesn't tell us exactly how 
uh, Jesus reacts. We don't know if he sort of slaps himself in the face. We don't know what he says there. We don't necessarily get the impression from Jesus that he's thinking, gosh, you guys are right on with this one. You've really nailed it now. Uh, the wishes that they express both before the resurrection and after the resurrection, do not seem to have a whole lot to do with what is happening here. So wish fulfillment, good idea, good hypothesis to have, you know, try, but doesn't seem to be what is happening here. What about the idea that, you know, what they got here is just a bunch of wonderful spiritual experiences. And so when they're talking about, you know, the resurrection, they just, man, it was just, I had this really warm feeling in my heart, and that corresponded with this new idea that I just came up with called bodily resurrection. I'm going to tell you how this, how this all works uh, because of this, you know, warm, positive spiritual ex experience. Does that work as an explanation? I don't think you're going to get a whole lot of mileage out of that one. Part of the reason is that if you're thinking in terms of spiritual experiences, like, hey, I had a vision of this person after they died you actually have a whole vocabulary in the ancient world and in Judaism that corresponds with that. So there's all kinds of ways that you can say, I had a wonderful spiritual experience in relation to somebody who had recently passed away. They went and they died, and they appeared to me somehow I had some sort of thing that took place. Jews talk about this all the time. And so you actually see this in, in, in the New Testament. And so it's, in a sense, unremarkable. So, Acts 12, Peter is in jail. They think he's all going to die. They're praying for him. Miraculously gets out of jail. Comes over, knocking on the door over at Mark's mom's house, saying, please, Mark's mom, open the door. I'm going to be killed unless you open the door. Servant girl comes down, looks out, sees Peter. What does she do? She's really excited. Goes back up and says, guys, Peter, he's down there. What do they say to her? Yeah. Says, oh, it's just his angel. What do they mean by that when they say his angel? Well, it's sort of the angelic form that's left of Peter. It is the angel of Peter, the ghost of Peter that is still around. And so you saw him outside, which is really cool, but it's not worth us going downstairs to open the door for. Because <laughs> that's when this happens, you know? And so you saw him. And then they kind of like hear this knocking, like knock, 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 knock. That's weird. Have you seen like a knocking angel before? Like, you know, a knocking spiritual experience, and they kind of think about it, like, yeah, maybe not. So they go downstairs, like, whoa, that wasn't the ghost of Peter. This isn't just a wonderful spiritual well, last experience. Last night I heard a doorbell ringing. You heard a doorbell ringing? <laughs> doorbell ringing and ringing. I heard it like one side of the door, and then I heard it like the other side of the door. So you can see, there is, they have a vocabulary for this. It could have been. It's possible. Okay, let me finish this. So, it, yeah, wonderful spiritual experiences, they go and they happen. Absolutely. Does that correspond with resurrection of the dead? The answer is absolutely not. When you have a wonderful vision, spiritual experience, what does that mean? Does that mean the person is alive? No, it means that they're dead. This is what happens when people die. Sometimes you see the ghost. Sometimes that's even a positive kind of experience when that goes and takes place. What that is talking about is absolutely not what early Christians are talking about. And you can see this both from the standpoint of what they themselves say and 
what their opponents say about them, because none of the early Christian opponents think that they are talking about wonderful spiritual experiences either. You think of, what is this? Is it Festus, if I remember correctly from Acts? Festus goes, and he's sort of trying to get some sort of explanation. What the heck is going on here? And it's like, yeah, there's Paul, and he's saying that he thinks that this guy Jesus was the Messiah, and then he's dead, and then Paul is saying that he's alive, I don't know what's going on. Uh, that's, that's literally, nobody can figure out what they're talking about. What they are not talking about is a kind of wonderful spiritual experience. There's a vocabulary for that that is absolutely not what this is. So what the heck do we do with this? How do we historically come up with some kind of explanation for what it is that we're looking at? We're looking at the phenomenon of the resurrection. What are the elements that you need to explain this? There are two things that Wright goes and says you have to have for any plausible explanation of this. This is crazy, but it's what you need. There are two things. One is an empty tomb. Even your most skeptical of scholars trying to look at this is going to say, yeah, it has to be an empty tomb, otherwise it's done this goes and makes any kind of sense. The second is encounters with a resurrected Jesus. Not simply a kind of spiritual encounter, but something beyond that. Again, to have simply a spiritual encounter was not even something that was worth opening the door for. They had a language to describe that, but that was itself just talking about life after death. And we've seen early Christians are talking about something else. They're talking about life after life after death. Now, at this point, when we get to talking about a resurrected Jesus, it can get a little bit, I don't know, there's something that changes, I think, existentially. Because we're talking about this as a historical thing, like, hey, let's just sort of do this objective historical deal. But I think that if we're really thinking about this, then there's a sense in which the, the subject matter that we're under, you know, considering, you can start to feel a little eerie. You can start to feel like the thing that you are looking back, that whatever that thing is, is looking back at you. And like there's a person that's sort of looking back at you. Because if we're talking about a resurrected person, then that person is ostensibly still resurrected. And that ostensibly then would seem to still have consequences for us today. If you think of, this is, this is a bad analogy, but I'll give you a bad analogy. Because um, considering how many uh, people said yes to the Disney movie and had seen Hercules. If you think of Lion King, you have Simba. What is Simba doing in sort of his, you know, post-Mufasa days? Um, Simba, he is, like, says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, which is, I think it translates into some African languages, Hakuna Matata or something like that. Um, it's basically quoting, you know, 1 Corinthians 15 there. That is the worldview. That's the life that he has. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You know, no worries for the rest of your days, etc. That is, that's what is his life is like. What happens? How, what gets him out of that? You would look at that and think, boy, that's never going to change. He's just, he's finally happy. He's doing what he wants, wants to do. He has an encounter. He has an encounter. That encounter then changes his life. It sends him away from the people that he loves the most, all of his friends, and it sends him in a direction, which for him is very uncomfortable, is not necessarily what he wants to do, but he recognizes that there is a deeper reality to his life and that he has to act in correspondence with it. 
He has a job to do. He has to go to Pride Rock. He has to go and take it back. Now, what's interesting is that encounter is itself only a spiritual encounter. Mufasa, if you think of, you know, Rafiki, you know, like, you know, I knew your father. No, I, I know your father. Correction. Um, that line that's there is still, it's not like Mufasa actually showing up in sort of trans-physical body. Like, oh, now I know that there's a resurrection. So that's where it's not a great analogy. But there's still something that's there. The thing that goes and changes the direction of his life is that there is something, there's a reality he comes across. And what he thought was previously dead, he now sees as alive. And there's something that he can't deny about it. I actually think that gives you a halfway decent analogy for what it is that the early Christians are talking about. Somebody that they thought was dead was alive, not just in a spiritual body, the actual physical resurrected body. And the evidence of that is so compelling for them that they have to then lead lives in accordance with that in a way that goes and brings them a lot of physical discomfort that makes things a lot more challenging for them. And yet they do it and they do it joyfully. I think that you have to have some kind of encounter like that. One, to make a Disney movie work. And two, to make a historical explanation for what goes and takes place here come together. I want to leave you with this. Um, the last line that we have here, what do we do as an audience in thinking about, because we've talked about this is historically, this is resurrection context, this isn't talking about the subjective elements of what resurrection, how this works for us individually, what this kind of life is like, how this life goes and gets into you. And so maybe at Pentecost we can do a talk about that, because we talk about the Holy Spirit and how this actually works in an embodied sort of fashion. But I want to leave you with this, this last line, because I think if there's one thing that is worth taking away from thinking about this historically, it is the last thing that Paul goes and gives us here. And so I'm going to read this last line from 1 Corinthians 15 for you once again. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be firm, steadfast, always fully devoted to the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If you think to Christ's resurrected body, if you think to his hands and his side, if you think to how even the bad things that we do, the weight of our own sins, if you think to the way that those somehow leave a mark in eternity, how much more will the good things that we do by his strength leave and endure for eternity? That, I think, is what Paul wants to leave us with when we're talking about the resurrection. So that's what I'll leave you with. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Thomas. Um, I'm going to leave this recording for a little bit because we got two minutes until we technically have to be out of this room. But I think that gives us enough time for at least one question. And if nobody from Berkeley comes to kick us out, then we can take another question. So if there are any burning questions for Dr. Thomas, feel free to raise your hand. I'll try and pick the first person who raises their hand. Yes. Slightly tangential, but I really have to ask this. Yeah. 
Uh, when you were going down the, the creedal formula in 1 Corinthians, you hit the point where uh, God will be all in all. David Bentley Hart seizes upon that in his discussion of universalism. Yeah. Uh, uh, Romelli, the woman who with the trilogy of apocatastasis, yeah. sees it. What is your opinion of that? Of that interpretation? Yeah, it's fantastic. So I will say that um, I am more open to the way that Ilaria Romelli talks about things like this, like you know, universal reconciliation, et cetera. Um, I'm more open to that than I am the ways that David Bentley Hart goes and does it. Um, part of that is because um, David's a certain kind of jerk lately. I know Ilaria some, just we're, we're not at the same time, the same seminar. And she's somebody whose work I have a you know, high view of. If you look at what she says about universal reconciliation, um, she's not she's not super dogmatic about it, nor is it something where she is anathematizing people who disagree with her. Right. And I think that um, both of those things you could say are kind of the opposite of of our you know our, our friend Dr. Hart. And uh, and so I get a little worried with you know with where, where Hart goes with this. When it comes to the, sort of the the full scope of the biblical witness and the full scope of the New Testament witness, and then, and then how this goes and works in the, in the early sources. Um, I don't find either of their reconstructions to be really partially satisfying when it comes to how it is that they deal with you know, what scripture says about you know, hell and last judgment, all kinds of things, things like that, and, and the consequences, the eternal consequences of our actions. Um, I don't find myself to be personally compelled by the reading that either of them give either of scripture or the tradition. But I would just say I have very little problem with Hilaria Romelli in the way that she does. And I think that people who are trying to interpret scripture in that direction is sort of you know, in sort of an exploration. In a way it's kind of like you know from Balsa or something like that. I I don't I don't have much much issue with, with that. Whereas it's harder for me lately to be um, as enthusiastic, uh, you know, they're kind of work. So, anyway, thank you for that question. It's fantastic. No one from Berkeley has shown up yet. <laughs> so, does anybody else have a question? I saw your flipping hand, but I... I know you're holding up. Okay, I'm just... I'm you're, already, you're already commented now. <laughs> <laughs> anybody else? I have one more. <laughs> I think okay. If we have time, I think we'll go. And so then this is more comment. I found I found the passage. Okay. Um, it's it's actually not the psalm. I mean, I think there is a psalm, but it's Second Samuel, chapter twelve, verse twenty-three, which says, and I'm quoting from actually the Jewish Bible. So it says, "But now that he is dead, this is uh, David speaking of that son that died with Bathsheba. But now that he is dead, why should I fast?" And he's speaking to Nathan, "Can I bring him back again?" Question mark. I will go to him, comma, but he will not return to me, period. So speaking of I will go to him after David passes, yeah. but his son will not return to him yeah. after death. So there's yeah. that explicit, you know, David speaking about the afterlife yeah. and seeing his son again, yeah. which is something that I found really comforting when I, when I remember reading that, you know, in, in the Hebrew in scriptures. Yeah, you can see other, other like, good, good analogies for that. You think of, like, the patriarchs like Moses who say, you know, you will be gathered to your fathers. So it doesn't talk about you know dying, which if you think of that's a, that would be a weird way of saying you're just 
going to go in the ground and not exist for forever. Like, there are easier ways and clearer ways of saying that than you will be gathered to your fathers. And it seems to imply. And this is the second comment that I wanted to make about the, uh, you know, in the New Testament, that before, before the death and resurrection of Christ, before the cross, you the men. I mean, this is I'm sure you've all heard this before, but the the men run away. You know, it's Jesus on the cross, Mary his mother, with the Mag- Magdalene, and you know, John, the Gospel John, that's there. He's put in the tomb, and once he's resurrected, the women show up. And it's only after that, and that witness of the physical, bodily, glorified resurrection of Jesus Christ walking around earth from Easter to Pentecost, those 40 days, where hundreds, not just individual, it's a you know, very small amount of individuals, but hundreds, thousands of people saw him. That, that's that man, you know. Yeah. And that's at the point where the men lost their fear, you know, and said, okay, I'm going into it, and I'm, I'm, you know, I will give my life now yeah. for this this Jesus Christ person that we didn't understand what he was talking about before yeah. he died and was resurrected. And now it's like, okay, I got it, I get it, and we're willing to go to the ends of the earth. Yeah. And the women were already there, just saying. <laughs> I like it. No, I think it's accurate. <laughs> Any questions? It's beautiful. Just, oh, oh, I think there's one in the I back that we didn't, go, didn't have yet. Maybe just... For Armand, do you want to ask one? Uh, yeah, uh, kind of two questions. So the first one is, um, you mentioned in the objection that um, to under the gospel, there's no personal resurrection hope, and so that kind of confirms the idea that um, it's not just the church's own instincts. Uh, if that's the case, where does the idea of of the that us individuals will be resurrected come from? It's not in the gospel. And then the second question is. Um, Okay, no, that's a great question. What's interesting is if you think of, uh, so you see, you know, makes, makes this point, maybe right. Uh, in general, the, the Gospels aren't written for audiences who are not already Christian. Now, does that mean that there's no, you know, non-Christian? I don't, I don't think so. I think it has, you know, in general, broader audience in view. But the Gospels, the four Gospels as we have them, are not themselves the genesis of Christian doctrine. They are the expression of Christian doctrine as the apostles and their associates went and wrote them down whenever we think that happened. And again, for me, the, the dates that make the most sense to me when I try to correlate all the data are you know, the 50s and 60s. That's just what makes the most sense to me. Whenever it happens to be whenever you, know, you think it's most, most plausible, that's when those things are written down. What pre-exists that? is the apostolic charisma. It's what the apostles went and preached. And what the apostles went and preached corresponds with what Jesus told them to preach in his sort of the time that he is with them, you know, after, after the resurrection. Um, and then, following the descent of the Holy Spirit, the truth that he goes and leads them into. So you think of the promise of Christ to lead the apostles into all truth by the Holy Spirit. That's where this all goes and comes from. Now, um, I do think that from the standpoint of deducing to individual resurrection, how that's all going to work. I don't think that's something that goes and takes you know, a whole lot of time necessarily. I do think the one point that I would make is that if you're looking in terms of those, you know, the four gospel accounts that we do have, if we want to say that these are just a reflection of 
the later church and its own concerns about itself, about its own belief and about its own you know, people who are there themselves being, being resurrected. And they're just very curious. It's, you know, it seems odd to go and write a topic about something and then never mention that topic. Like, I'm going to write a book about baseball, and then I'm never going to mention baseball in my book about baseball. It's all going to be about golfing. Um, I just never got around to it. Don't know what happened. And then there's four books that are all like this. It seems odd. Uh, it seems really strange. So um, I think that itself, why it is that you don't have that, I think it has something to do with just the genre of the Gospels. If you think of them within you know, the genre of a, you know, a, a, a record-owned biographer, which I think they do seem to fit within that, then it would make sense why it is that they are really focusing on the figure and not trying to go and you know, sort of project a lot of later things that are there. So just one great example of this. The big controversy that is, you know, tears the church apart in a lot of ways in, in the 40s, the big issue that they want to face is over circumcision. Do believers have to be circumcised? Do the Gentiles, do they have to go and become Jews? Is that necessary or not? It would have been really easy if the gospel writers felt as though they had some kind of license over, you know, sort of the portrait of Jesus. It would have been really, really easy and really, really convenient for them to go and just have a little statement there somewhere where Jesus goes and says, "Guy, by the way, if you're a Gentile, you come in, you don't have to circumcise. Like, you could probably do it in like five words, yeah. right? Who's going to know? Yeah. Who is going to know? Think of how much that would help because this thing just tears apart the church. It does. Like, this is what you see. I mean, if you read, you know, Acts, it's a huge problem. If you read, you know, if you read Galatians, huger than huge problem. If you read, it's just all over the place. And part of the difficulty is it does not seem that historically Jesus said anything about how circumcision is to function within the New Covenant. And then, importantly, it does not seem as though the apostles and the evangelists thought that they had the license to put words in Jesus' mouth that he did not actually historically say. We would really, really helpful if they thought they could do that. But they didn't do it. And that's for the most pressing issue in the early church. So, anyway, it's a great question. Thank you. I think people probably have more questions. I'm sorry, we didn't get to your questions. If you if anyone has questions afterwards, feel free. I mean, it just means my daughter gets to stay up later, and so she'll be happy about that. So. Great. <laughs> right. I encourage anyone who would like to to take a picture of the board before leaving. If you want to go back and kind of think about this information, or maybe do your own readings, um, or present to any of your non-Christian friends, be very rational. Uh, reasons why you should consider the faith. Um, let's give another round of applause for. Everybody.